Good morning. Hello. I'm glad to see all of you this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the beginning of the New Testament. It's on the right-hand side of your Bibles, if you're unfamiliar with it. There are Bibles in the baskets um, near your chairs if you need one. Um, If you need it and you want it, you can take it home with you. Um, That is... Um, a great thing for us to give you, a Bible. Um, today, as has been mentioned several times, um, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent, of course, um, it's the beginning of the church's calendar where we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. And as, um, as has already been discussed, that's a little different than Christmas, Christmas isn't the beginning of the church's calendar, it's Advent. And to be sure, we're all excited about Christmas coming this year. Am I right? I mean, if there's ever been a year where we're like, yes, give me some Christmas, I'll take it. If ever there was a year that we needed Christmas and we're like ready for Christmas music to be playing, it's this. In years past, I've I've complained about Christmas music too early. And that seems crazy in 2020. I'm like, bring on the little drummer boy. I want that that little boy. Bring him in the drum, yes want it. Um, Advent, though, is, a, is about something different than just Christmas. Um, it's about more. Advent is about anticipating, yes, the arrival of little baby Jesus um, once upon a time in history, being born of Mary and swaddled up tightly and being laid in a feed box. That is um, exactly um, part of it. But Advent is also about the arrival of um, exactly what we've said, the arrival of the still living Jesus, the tortured but triumphant Jesus, once again in history, like in, in, in space and time to appear and to bring justice to the world and to make all things right, to bring salvation. If, if ever there was a year where we're like, come on, let's bring some salvation. Let's have the arrival of Jesus it should be 2020, right? I mean, goodness gracious. Amen and amen. Um, what we've been talking, this is what we've been talking about uh, the last few weeks as we've ended our series on um, Revelation. There are uh, four weeks as the church calendar begins, four weeks of Advent that lead up to the grand celebration of Christmas. And Advent literally, it just means arrival, is all it means. That's what the the word means. Um, It's four weeks of anticipating the arrival of um, Jesus. Advent involves anticipation. Real basic, real basic. Um, And that sounds fine at first. We got four weeks devoted in the church calendar to anticipation, a season of the year devoted to anticipation. Okay, well, that sounds all well and good. Let's, but does it does it sound good, really? I mean, it, my anticipation's not that great. Um, I asked my, five, my almost five-year-old about anticipation. She is clear-minded and honest enough to tell you that anticipation can be agony. <laughs> I mean, it's like, ter- she's old enough now at this point to remember Christmas, to like know what it's about, the tree, the lights, the green, the, the red, the, you know, like all of it, the food, and of course, the presents, the gifts. Ah, she's old enough that she loves the sights and the sounds and the presents. And she's old enough now at this point that Christmas is taking forever 
to arrive. It's like, is it Christmas yet? If I hear that one more day, is tomorrow Christmas? No, it's not. We're about to put a calendar up to like help her understand, mark off these days. Um, We put our uh, Christmas tree up. Uh, this past week. Can I get a woot woot for Christmas trees going up this past week? Yes, that's right. We need Christmas this year. Bring on the little drummer boy. Um, and uh, she kept, she's begun asking. Um, to, uh, and at, like, at one point this past week, we were, had to be like, no, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Um, Christmas is still, but the anticipation is killing her. And I'm under no delusion of what she wants. She wants said presents. She wants said gifts. She's aching for Christmas this year because, I can tell you why, because she's aching for a Hatchimals Pixies crystal flyer. I can, it's right up here. This is what she's wanting this year. She really wants, and I have to admit, it's pretty cool. It's, uh, it's a pretty cool, like, doll action figure kind of thing combined, of course, with drone technology. <laughs> really? No, it's not false advertisement. It really does fly. There's like a little thing that you put on your hand that like control, like it's a drone doll. That's, uh, we didn't have these as kids. Anyway, um, until that Hatchimals Pixies crystal flyer is whirling around our house, my beloved child is going to be aching aching in anticipation. She knows the possibility of the future, that it possibly is, there's a good and beautiful future in her eyes. Something pretty freaking cool in all of our eyes. Um, that, and it's painful that this future is not here yet. We could say it this way. Advent involves anticipation, and to anticipate is to ache. That's what this season is in the church calendar. It's a season where we name it. The future's not here yet. What we want isn't here yet, and I'm aching for it. There's, uh, for Daphne, there's uh, my my almost five-year-old, there's a space in her soul that only a Hatchimals pixie crystal flyer can fill, and she's aching, and she's feeling incomplete until it arrives, and uh, quite honestly, in maybe the rawest form, that's an experience of the season of Advent, is what that is. She's aching for the future to come. One of the most beautiful things, though, about being a parent is um, to know that your child's longing is going to be fulfilled. Let the reader understand. Uh, (laughs) There's going to be a moment when this will be consummated. When, like, there are plenty of times in my life, and I'm sure, like, in her life as her parent, that I'm I'm not going to be able to fill her aching and her longing and her desires for things. And the, but, but this is a case where, uh, their Christmas morning is coming, and I can, least I can do is I can give her this. Um, and so the Davises, just a side note, the Davises will end 2020 with a drone literally flying around inside of our house. That is an um, appropriate way to end 2020 this year, right? Um, if you're aching, if you came in here and you're aching for things to be better, that things aren't the way they should be. If you're aching, Advent is for you.
That's what this season of the church calendar is about. To help us think about it for just a couple of minutes this morning, I just want to read um, right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, um, it, starting in verse 17 is where we'll begin. The, the, before this, uh, the, the New Testament actually, it begins in a very familiar way to most of us who have seen serialized television. It, it begins with, previously on the Bible. Um, that's what a genealogy functions as. Uh, that's how Matthew was written for a primarily Jewish audience. And so um, they would have caught on that these first 17 verses of Matthew, it's a genealogy that most of us yawn our way through. Can't you get to the action? But it's functioning as a review of the significant plot points in the Bible, in in the story of the people of God. And then it ends in verse 17 this way. It says, thus, there were 14, is a stylized way of telling it. If you add up the chronology, it doesn't add up to 14. Um, in the Old Testament. It's Matthew's doing a thing with seven right here. Anyway, just to let you know, don't get hung up on this. It's a stylized way of writing at the time. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so those are the plot points. Abraham, David, exile, Messiah. God made grand promises to Abraham back there in the Bronze Age that heaven would finally heal the world through a family that he was going to create. And then God made grand promises to one of his descendants, David, in the early Iron Age that one of his descendants would rule the world forever. But eventually, like, the entire story just, like, unravels. It just, like, collapses into ruin and rebellion and exile. The Neo-Babylonian Empire destroys Jerusalem and its temple. But now, Matthew is saying, as his his gospel begins, now something new is coming. The Messiah, literally like the Christos, the the, the anointed one, the long-awaited king from the line of David that's going to heal the world from, from Abraham's promises. Like, he's arriving in the middle of this mess. Will God's grand promises ever be fulfilled is what people of the time are aching about. Will the deepest longings of the human heart ever be fulfilled? And Matthew says, yes. Yes, in the birth of Jesus, this big, messy story is headed somewhere. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, uh, let the reader understand, uh, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, um, he did not want... The and isn't a good translation right there. Uh, He did not, because he was faithful to the law, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, it just literally means Yahweh saves. Um, Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill, to fulfill 
what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter two, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, dot, 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 ellipses. Let's just stop right there. The next verse in the beginning of chapter two is immediately going to name that Jesus was born under the reign of King Herod. History remembers this man as Herod the Great. We have a bust of him right here. Um, And Herod was a brilliantly cunning political warlord who had married and bullied his way to the top of like the regional government. He was friends with Mark Antony, not the uh, popular guy. Uh, what is he, like a singer or something? Or Caesar Augustus, named Octavian. He's buddies with these guys, and uh, he, he bullies and marries his way to the top of the regional government, and he's called great because he helped lead the region into economic prosperity. You could tell that things were prosperous back then in the same way that you can do it right now. You watch the skyline change is the way you know the economic growth is happening, that we're all doing all right. Buildings are going up. He was great, Herod was, because of aqueducts that were suddenly running like fresh water. He was great because public buildings were going up. He was great because he's initiated and completed an elaborate renovation of Jerusalem's rebuilt temple. Um, he was, Herod, though, was so deva- devoted to greatness, to being great, that he, um, he thought nothing of goodness. He thought nothing of being good. Um, and by the end of his life, Herod's soul was being poisoned by like his own ambition. You can read about this in history. He, uh, he ended up killing one of his own wives, much of her family. Happy Thanksgiving, you're all dead. Um, and then uh, even two of his sons that he uh, had um, from her. Uh, he's, he's exactly the kind of personality that you can imagine, as, as Matthew tells us in chapter two, he, he's exactly the kind of personality you can imagine giving orders to kill a a handful of couple dozen babies maybe in a remote village in Bethlehem, you know, just because he, he's threatened by some prophecy. He's paranoid and cruel. Um, he's so paranoid and cruel that he, uh, at one point, he gave standing orders to his officials that he wanted a group of public um, figures, popular, the, the YouTube stars, the celebrities, the politicians, whoever. The, um, he wanted them assassinated if he died unexpectedly because he wanted to make sure that there was going to be weeping on the day of his death. <laughs> That's the kind of like psyche we're dealing with towards the end of Herod's life. To be sure, uh, his officials and his family, they didn't actually do that. They didn't carry out his orders. But um, you can imagine at this point this kind of world that you're living in under Herod the Great in the region of Judea. Truly, it was the best of times skyline changing, prosperity, and the worst of times. It is just terrible. The paranoia, the, the fear, the terror of like, what will he do next? It is into this kind of world. It is into this kind of world. The, the Bible was not written like in an ivory tower. It is into this kind of world, the, a world of prosperity and breakthroughs and of low-grade anguish and fear and terror that verse 20, an angel comes and he arrives and he says, God's purposes are arriving. God's promises 
are going to be fulfilled. They are going to be fulfilled. The story isn't over. There is hope. Hope. Um, that's what we're all longing for. If we got really raw and honest this morning. That's what we are all aching for, like my daughter for Christmas. That's what we're all straining and looking towards the future for, like during a season of Advent, hope. And we want to say it this way, hope um, can only happen when we're hurting. Like it's into this world, a world of Herod the Great, of hurting. Um, Some people have this idea that like if you're hurting, you can't be hoping. No, it's it's precisely the only place that you can be hoping. Um, It's similar to the way that you could say that faith can only happen when you're not absolutely certain. If you're absolutely certain about something, you cannot, by definition, have faith. Like, at that point, you would just have certainty, right? Um, In the same way, if you already had what you're hoping for, you wouldn't have hope at that point. Yeah, we, um, when um, Daphne, receives one particular present on Christmas morning, she will no longer have hope. She will no longer, she will have the thing itself and we'll see what it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, if you are hurting this morning, I just need, we need to say this, you're not beyond hope. You're actually primed for hope. That's uh, hope. Um, we, we could say it this way. Hurt is the only soil in which hope can grow. It's the only soil in which hope can grow. This angel appears to Joseph in a hurting world, in the middle of like a prospering world and a scary world, in the middle of like all of his questions personally about like the fidelity of his betrothed and what has she been up to. And he, the angel invites him to hope, invites him to anticipate, Joseph, there is a world coming where God's good purposes and God's good promises all the way back to David and to Abraham, they're finally going to be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled. Joseph and his betrothed found this hope. Everything that God had promised, verse uh, 22, uh, God had promised through the prophets is going to be pleiraod. It's trying to add the ed to the end of it. Pleiraod. It's going to be filled up. It's going to be fulfilled. One Christian philosopher put it this way, and I found this really helpful. Despair is the anticipation of non-fulfillment. Hope is the anticipation of fulfillment. That's um, either way, things aren't the way that they should be yet. Either way, there is hurting that this hope is growing out of. You're anticipating, but one is anticipating a future of non-fulfillment, and one is anticipating a future of fulfillment. And so we, we all come into this room hurting and longing and aching in some sort of way, we're all anticipating the arrival of something in the future, either fulfillment or non-fulfillment. And we're all doing this all the time. We're all anticipating. We're all like expecting 
some sort of end to the story, that it's going to turn out in some sort of way. And at bottom, one of, it's one of these two ways. It's either fulfillment or non-fulfillment. <laughs> it's, um, quite often, what we experience in the present comes from what we anticipate about the future. So um, anticipation, we could say it this way, anticipation involves sipping just a little bit, sipping on the expected future in the present is what you're doing. Have you ever had a strange taste in your mouth and you wondered like, where in the world did that come from? Especially in 2020 where you're having to wear masks and it like amplifies tastes and smells and you're just like, man, is it always this bad for everyone around me? Like, why is my breath like this? Why did it taste like that? And then you realize, oh, it was the onions. (laughs) Oh, I remember it was tuna for lunch. That's what it was. Or like you have been sipping on coffee all morning and you're like, oh, that was the... That was the coffee that I'd been sipping. Anticipation is like this. Anticipation gives us a taste of the future, but instead of um, you're, you're sipping on, not um, you're tasting and sipping on, not what you had from earlier this morning. What you're actually sipping on is what you expect in the future. And so we could say it this way. Anxiety is sipping on the expected tragedy of the future in the present. That's what you're doing. Like, I'm convinced. I, I struggle with anxiety myself. Um, convinced deep down somewhere in my unredeemed bones that the future coming for me or my family or my children or for this world is actually going to be a tragedy. It's actually going to be non-fulfillment. That our longings, our deepest desires are going to be ignored. That they're going to be extinguished. And what happens when I sip on that future right now in the present? What do I taste? What gets into my mouth? It's anxiety. Mark Twain, at one point, he quipped that uh, I am an old man and I have known many troubles and most of which have never happened. (laughs) It doesn't matter whether or not um, the, the future actually is a tragedy I'm expecting the future to be a tragedy, and I'm sipping on what I expect about the future, and it's causing anxiety in me right now. But God does not want us to sip on future tragedy, because the gospel says that the universe is not a tragedy. It is a comedy. It has a redemptive, surprising end. God doesn't want us filled with despair or anxiety. God wants us Filled with hope, especially in the season of Advent. And hope is sipping on expected future joy in the present. You're saying, oh, I know what's coming in the future. Oh, it's better than pumpkin spice or peppermint latte. It is future joy that's coming. And that's the gospel. By the way, you're invited to believe it this morning, again and again and again, that although it is the best of times and the worst of times, we are invited to sip on the future, and it is good and beautiful, and it is coming. And when we do, what we taste in our soul is hope. That's what we taste. The season of Advent is the season where um, the church acknowledges the hurt of the present, the pain of the present, the ache 
within us. Like this year was not supposed to be this. My life was not supposed to be this way. And it invites us to hope, to anticipate, to sip on a future that is good. And how we do this is exactly what's already been said this morning. We remember backward so that we can hope forward. That's what we do. As Christians, this is what we do every year. We, every year, we remember the coming of a real historic person in the world, Jesus of Nazareth. We remember backward. We have more evidence that Jesus was born in first century Palestine, that he was a wonder-working teacher and exorcist, and that he was executed by crucifixion under the reign of Pontius Pilate. Then we have evidence for almost anything in the ancient world. The reason why it's not in textbooks that way is because of this unprecedented rumor that started circulating at the time and continues to circulate around the globe today that this man rose from the dead never to die again someone literally something that no one literally no one not his disciples not anybody was expected and we have the unprecedented rise of the church in the wake of this resurrection rumor living and dying for the sake of loving every single person even the low even the least even the dirty, even the enemy. This church rose up and said, we're going to love you. And the idea of the inherent dignity of every single person, regardless of race or gender or social status or anything, human beings simply have intrinsic value. This is something that the Western world takes for granted, but it was an absolutely foreign concept in the ancient world. And this revolutionary idea emerged from the unprecedented belief that God himself had come among us. Verse 23, Emmanuel had come and he had chosen solidarity with the lowest and the least and the dirty and the executed criminal. My point is this, God has broken through in history. Like he changed the world. Our calendars got changed for crying out loud. We look back and we remember. And God promised that he would come again. That he would, he's changed the world. He fulfilled the grand promises to Abraham and David. And he promises that he's going to do it Again, we don't hope in a vacuum, is what I'm saying. We don't make a blind leap of faith. We remember that something has come before us so that we can trust what is coming ahead of us. We remember backward so that we can look forward. And all of this story should tell you, and someone needs to hear this this morning, that God's goodness does not hinge on your hope. You need to hear that this morning. An angel appears to Joseph fulfilling this grand story, promising it will be fulfilled. And the hope is coming, the goodness is coming to a largely hopeless and faithless people. That's the whole point of what we call the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures. They are faithless. They are wandering from God's purposes and promises. They are hopeless. They are wondering whether God is going to ever rescue them or transform them. And here, in the coming of Jesus, we find a God who says, I know that you are in exile. 
I know that you are lost in the far country. I know that you're confused. And I know that you're aching. And I know that you're hurting. And I know that you're faithless. And I know that you're hopeless. I know that you don't love me. But I love you. And I am coming for you. I know that you're dead in your sin. But I, verse 21, I am coming to save you from your sins. If you are in a place this morning where you don't feel like you can hope, let me give you some good news. God's goodness has never hinged on anybody's ability to make ourselves feel hopeful. It's okay. Can I say this in church? It's okay if you don't feel hope right now. It's okay if you don't feel hopeful. If you feel hopeless, it's okay. I want to tell you the truth, though. Joy is coming even when hope is gone. It's coming. If you don't feel hopeful, even in Advent or even on Christmas morning, joy is coming. In fact, Advent this year, it might be a really good time for all of us to lean into our longings to lean into and feel the pain of, like, grieve how painful and hard, to let our feels, ourselves feel the hurt that we have been carrying around. Can I tell you something, though? Joy is coming. Even in the moments where I don't feel hopeful, and that gives me hope. Joy is coming even in the moments where I don't feel hopeful. That's what gives me hope. In fact, honest to God hope, it starts growing within me to the degree that I realize that the future is joyous and God gives the future as freely as a pixie crystal flyer. He just gives it because he wants his children to delight. The wrongs will be righted, my brothers and sisters. The atrocities will be stopped. The pain that you're going through will have meaning. The good will win. The dawn will break. The dead will be raised. We will find ourselves at home one day and the party will never end. And it's a party that we don't throw. The same Jesus that we look back to in history and that we anticipate coming in the future, he's the one throwing the party. He's the one providing the bread and the wine. It's all on him. The drinks are on him. And he's going to let us all join in like kids on Christmas morning. And on that glorious day, when Emmanuel comes one day in glory, we won't need, thank God, we won't need hope anymore. And so for right now, we ache and we anticipate. For right now, we advent. 